Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. We are continuing on in our Advent series and find ourselves covering Mary's Magnificat this morning. So Luke 1, starting in verse 46. I'll read to verse 55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Gracious Father, I ask you to give us what we do, do not have and to make us what we are not already. Prepare us in our hearts to receive your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our Advent series. We have gone from seeing Christ bringing hope to those in despair and Christ bringing peace out of chaos, and now Christ bringing joy to replace our sorrow. We've seen that there are these virtues and they're um, antithetical, I guess, vices. If he brings hope, it must be because we're despairing people. If he brings peace, it must be because there's some measure of chaos in the world. And if he brings joy and love, it must be because we are sorrowful people and apathetic people. But why do we have sorrow? Why do we have sorrow? Is it from lack of possessions? Is it from failure to attain what we pursue? Think about why you might be sorrowful sad. We no doubt have sadness in our hearts because we don't want, don't get what we want, whether we're two years old experiencing that or 42 years old. But there is a much deeper reason why we are familiar with sorrow, and that is because we are naturally estranged from our Creator. That is the root cause for all our sorrow, all other sorrows are really distant cousins from that great divorce, that we are not in union with our maker. We have been cast out of the Garden of Eden, and in our estrangement from God, sorrow has filled our hearts. God is a God of delight, a fountain of joy, as people we've already quoted this morning have said in the past. To be cut off from him is to then be cut off from true joy. And that to be flooded in, that vacuum to be flooded in with true sorrow. Thomas Cole is a painting of the Hudson River um, School of Art. 
And he painted a piece called Expulsion from the Garden of Eden. His piece, I think, and I would, I would encourage you to go home and Google it after today. His piece does not focus like some pieces on the angst in Adam and Eve's face when they leave the garden. Uh, there are some pieces of art that just you see the despondency and the, the, the utter tragedy that is dawning upon Adam and Eve because they have been cut off and, and cast out. His piece is not like that. It is a much more comprehensive scene. There is in the middle of a wonderful painting, a rock and a, and a, a rock, which is a cave. That's in the right in the middle of it. And from that rock, there is on the right side of the painting, a, a land of light and delight. And on the left side of that rock, a land of darkness and just misery. There's even a little wolf down in the left-hand corner feeding on something. But this cave, this rock has light shooting out from it, from the right, going to the left, going into the darkness, and it is lighting the, our parents as they move from one area to the next. One painting artist, expert person, <laughs> says the canvas portrays a stark division between the idyllic Eden on the right-hand side and the corrupt dark world of the fall on the left. The former has a clear blue sky, lush green vegetation, an inviting glow, and mist shrouded mountains that are just ripe to be explored. While the latter is a forbidding, primordial land of harsh crags, dead, twisted trees, and an erupting volcano. And that's where we live, in the dark. Now, the enemy has done a pretty good job wrapping that dark up, putting a bow on it and saying, it's pretty darn good. But nevertheless, I think Cole, along with other artists and did a great job of painting. What is the true problem here? There's the objectively good, light, righteous, and the objectively sorrowful, bad, unrighteous life. And it is in this dark left scene, that's where we live. That's where we live. And that's where the Messiah goes. That's where the Messiah goes. He leaves idyllic Eden of his own volition and searches out his people, his creatures who have rebelled against him. Why? To bring them home and to fill them with what they once had, namely eternal joy. We are filled with sorrow in this land on this left, this dark, ravenous land, dog-eat-dog -dog land. 
And Christ comes to give us life, hope, peace, love, and joy. Luke's gospel is perfect for this because in Luke's first couple chapters, he has by far the most information about the narrative of Jesus's birth and announcement and John the Baptist's announcement and and birth. And it is no irony then that joy is all over the early chapters of Luke, all over. Even the word joy is all over. The first time we see this joy is when Zachariah and Elizabeth are told that they're going to have a baby boy after years of not having one. And this is how their boy will, is described. Or her pregnancy, Elizabeth's pregnancy is described because of her birth, her, her pregnancy. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. And that's just of John, the one paving the way for the real joy bringer. But even for John the Baptist and his family, these synonyms are just stacked on top of each other. Joy, gladness, and rejoicing will occur because of the forerunner of Jesus. Go later into the same chapter, because Luke likes to write long chapters as if he chaptered them. And we see Gabriel greeting Mary. Unfortunately, most of our translations say greetings or hey. That's actually not at all what it is. I mean, if we were to be very literal, it means in verse 28, he came to her and said, rejoice. He didn't just say, hi, nice to meet you. I'm Gabriel. But rejoice. I am coming to bring good news. Later on, when Mary and Elizabeth meet, when they're both pregnant, what happens when Mary and Elizabeth meet, but baby Johnny leaps with joy in his mother's womb. You can just see this inbreaking of delight and joy, a who knows how, I forget how exactly how many months they were, but both baby Jesus and baby John in their respective mothers. And yet when the mothers meet, little baby Johnny jumps for joy. Maybe has quite a bit of a kick just because he's in the presence of Jesus. Jesus didn't even say anything. Just the presence of Jesus is bringing joy. And then later on, Zechariah's prophecy, though it is without the word joy, it is no doubt a delight and a joyful prophecy. And of course, how can we forget about the classic Christmas text when the angels announce to the shepherds, I bring you good news of Great joy. Not just, I bring you good news of happiness, but not just joy, great joy. And then there, of course, is Mary's Magnificat, which we will spend our time looking at today. So I have two points 
One is the quality of joy that arrives with Jesus. Uh, we, we heard about it a little bit this morning in Sunday school from Pastor Don. The quality of joy that comes with Jesus. And then secondly, reasons for such joy. The quality of joy that comes with Jesus and the reasons for such joy. Mary's Magnificat is, it is memorized. It is stored in our memory banks. It is, uh, it is the capstone response to God has become man for our salvation and to deliver us and to bring us hope and joy and love and restore us. But it wasn't her first response. Her first response was quite like what we would do. Go back to, you might have to turn a page back. Go back to chapter one, verse 28. Listen to how this first dialogue happens with Gabriel and Mary. And he came to her and said, rejoice, O favored one. The Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He's already been named for her. Doesn't have to worry about picking out a name. And he will be great and he will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? Now we can't blame her for asking such a question. But I just want to put this in context of the Magnificat is her second chance at a good response. So she says, how, how can this be? Gabriel says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, verse 35, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative, Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary says, verse 38, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Not until little baby Johnny and Jesus in the wombs of Mary and Elizabeth come together, does Mary respond? The Magnificat is the response to Mary and Elizabeth meeting together, and now she gets it. Now she gets it. Now, we're not going to blame her. Anybody who heard these words from Gabriel, I mean, from even a human, let alone a mighty angel, would say, uh, how can this be? I don't, I don't get it. But what is Mary's redemption, so to speak here? Her second response, it is full of joy. 
full of joy, when she finally gets it and it dawns upon her, I am bearing the Messiah, the ruler of Israel. And in some shrouded, mysterious way, the son of God, my soul magnifies the Lord. Now, is she happy or joyful? You never know when you talk about the same topic, if you're going to undercut the other speaker, he's going to undercut you. And I'm glad I'm not undercutting Don and he didn't undercut me in Sunday school. He talked talked about joy and how we should be joyful with one another, share our joy. But happiness and joy are, they are not the same. They are not the same. Joy is not an old-fashioned way to say, I'm happy. You can say you're happy over a glaze-covered, jelly-filled donut. Or a new year is approaching. That is not the same of internal, eternal joy. Happiness is given like pennies. Joy is such a rare commodity. Joy, as some scholars say, is the characteristic attitude of the New Testament church, whose public worship is full of joy and each individual Christian. And when this word for joy is used in the Old Testament, in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, this joy is referring to a festive joy that expresses itself publicly over God's acts of salvation, past and present. It is essentially a Christ-governed virtue. It's not cheaply to be cast around like, oh, I'm joyful, 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 or I got the joy, 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 joy down in my heart. It's not the same as happiness. We can be happy and happy is good. Don't worry, be happy. But it's not the same as joy. Joy is completely governed and defined by Christ's salvation. We, last time, we, we quoted from the Book of Comfort, the latter half of Isaiah's prophecy, uh, chapters 40 to 66. That is the, the Book of Comfort. And in that comfort, we saw many passages about the peace which Christ brings to undo the disordered, chaotic world. From that passage in the book of comfort, we have Jesus installing his um, ministry philosophy in Isaiah 61.1. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, do all these wonderful reversing of the curse kind of things. Later in 61, verse 10, just nine verses later, we have this description. Because of the act of the Messiah, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. It sounds very much like Mary's own opening lines to her Magnificat. The soul boasts, rejoices, and loves the salvation that God 
brings. The Messiah's arrival means joy arrives also. It is a created emotion within the believer that is completely tethered to salvation. And that is not to say we can't use the word joy for things that are not salvific or not Christian. I want to say you had a joyful time at a river rafting? Go ahead. But there is an element in which we need to monopolize the word joy for God and salvation. Only Christ brings salvation. Only Christ brings true joy. So that is the quality of joy that comes with Christ. Now, the reasons for such joy. The rest of the Magnificat gives these reasons for such expulsive affections. One, look there in verse 48, that God looks on the humble state of his servant. Here's a cause for joy. God looks on the humble. He doesn't turn his face away. Now, we might read verse 48, for he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant and think, oh, well, isn't that nice? Yeah, God should look at the humble. You know, he's perfect, he's godly, he's holy, he's righteous, he does all things perfect and right. But to put it one way, like, how do you walk down the street and see someone who's down and out, ugly, bothersome, annoying, and just a drag on your day? Do you kind of like not really want to look at them? (laughs) Or do you go out of your way (laughs) to help them? When it says God looks on the humble estate of his servant, that is a a joy-inducing thing. That God would look on the humble and do good to them. God is a high and holy God. You would think God dwells with high and holy people. He doesn't. He dwells with those who are lowly and contrite of spirit and who tremble at his word. And Mary is overjoyed that God looks upon her and would even notice her. I'm sure we have many friends, family members who in their Catholicism think Mary has merited this. After all, she is called favored. I'm not going to go into all this, but chapter one is full of many reasons why Mary is completely surprised that God is even looking at her, let alone calling her to be the bearer of the Messiah. (laughs) She is floored. Little teenage Mary is floored and surprised that God would ever look upon this humble servant and do something good with her, let alone bring the joy bringer of the world. (laughs) Mary is confessing in joy that God has looked upon her and chosen to use her. Looked upon does not mean that God hadn't seen her or he didn't know of her, looked upon simply means he is choosing to use someone, although he doesn't need to use them. He is purposefully noticing her to use her and for her benefit. It would be like a king walking down 
a street, a pathway in his kingdom, seeing a bunch of down and out serfs in some alley. And out of that group, just saying, why don't you come to me? And I'm going to bring you into my castle. I'm going to lavish all my kingly powers and goodness upon you. You haven't done anything worth it to, to earn it. You don't even look like you really belong in such company of me. But I will condescend and come to you and do this. God likes to use low people. He loves to save low people. Even low Mary. I think a question we should ask ourselves to elicit such joy is, do I think of myself as lowly? Or am I too good for that? You can't have it both ways. You can't say, I'm pretty, I'm pretty good. And, and save me, Lord. <laughs> it's no, no, no. It's I have nothing. I'm a lowly beggar. Please have mercy upon me. You can take joy that God loves in taking notice of the lowly people. Those who are poor. Not, not materially so the poor in spirit who recognize their need. God loves and will not refuse the, the person who says, have mercy upon me, Lord. Second reason why Mary is so ecstatic and joyful, going way beyond the bounds of cheap happiness, is because God brings peace and order in his kingdom. He brings peace and order in his kingdom. Now, we talked about this for a whole sermon last time, so I'm not going to cover this very thoroughly, but look down at verses 52 and 43. What is the result of this advent of Christ, this appearance of God in flesh? Verse, uh, the last line of verse 51, he has scattered the proud in their thoughts, in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. This is a, this is a reversal of what is presently going on. As we learned a week ago and two weeks ago, when, when Christ comes into the world and the son of righteousness dawns upon those who are in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali, it is a clash of kingdoms. The present darkness, the left area of that painting, is clashing with the children, with the kingdom of light. And so when they clash, Jesus is undoing the curse and he is causing those who are high and lifted up and exalted, and he's bringing them down. And those who are down who are hungry, he is raising them up. So all kings, <laughs> even parents, want order in their home, let alone a king over his serfs and officials. And a king's job is to set shalom, to set peace and order. And Jesus is doing that in his first advent. He installs his kingdom 
not only to save sinners, but to change a world of crookedness and to straighten it out. God delights to undo this chaos by choosing the things of the world, by choosing the things the world thinks are foolish or insignificant. And what we see in Paul's writings in chapter 1 of Corinthians, we see here in Mary's Magnificat. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. Again, we can't count ourselves significant and ask for salvation. But we can confess, I am in need and receive that salvation, and then respond to such joy? Do we see ourselves as people who would be needy people? Are we the the ones the Lord is bringing down, or the ones that he is rising up? And then thirdly, Mary is overjoyed because God has seen himself faithful to his covenant. Verses 54 and 55. He, God, has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Mary first is exploding with joy because she realizes little old Mary is carrying the Messiah. (laughs) That's like breathtaking. Can't compute, right? But her joy doesn't stay there. Otherwise, we couldn't really learn of it. No one here is going to bear the Messiah. But by her, the conclusion of her joy is something that we all can take joy in, and that is God is faithful to his covenant. He is faithful to his promises. There are two promises being interwoven in chapter one here. The first promise is that God promised to Abraham a nation and that nation would be a blessing, right? God promised to Abraham that he would be a blessing and a blessing to the world. The second promise, I mean, there are many of them in the Old Testament, but the one that we want to consider this morning is that God also promised that the one from Abraham who would be a blessing would also be a king, a royal ruler. And he will put down enemies. And he will relate to God, to Yahweh, like a son. This is all 2 Samuel 7. And both of these promises come true in Christ. And I think Mary gets it. I think she gets it. We see earlier in chapter 1, that this Jesus, whom she is going to conceive miraculously, is the son of the Most High. How many Most Highs are there? (laughs) There's only one, and that's El, or Yah, or Yahweh. He is Most High. So Jesus is going to be born through Mary, and he'll be called the Son of the Most High, And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. So now we have this David promise. So this royal person, this ruler, is going to come from Mary. But not only David's offspring, but actually 
Abraham's offspring as well. Uh, she quotes here that this baby, this Jesus, not only fulfills the original promise to David, but also the far-reaching promise back to Abraham. And she now understands this in some way. Things that were hidden and, and shrouded from Old Testament saints are starting to be made known and disclosed to Mary and, and others. And Mary says in verse 54, he does this in remembrance of his mercy. Now, we know nothing of a forgetting, know-nothing God. We know of a God who is full of knowledge, all knowledge, and never forgets. So when it says that he is doing this in remembrance of his mercy, Mary's basically saying this, oh, I get it now. The promise you made Yahweh thousands of years ago you are now choosing to activate and bring to fruition the long-expected Jesus that Abraham, David, Moses, all these former Old Testament saints waited for for millennia or more is falling upon me, little old Mary. And you're choosing now to make good on your promise. He's not all of a sudden remembering. He has never forgotten. He's choosing now in the fullness of time to bring about his promises. And so in this sense, Mary, ourselves, take joy that God always keeps his promises. I, lo I love my dad. One thing I didn't like him saying Promises are made to be broken. God never breaks his promises. Never. He will delay them. He will cause them to come into fruition at a time later when we don't anticipate. But he always, always keeps his promise. Now, I want to close with this. There is a bit of a wrinkle when we talk about this promise and this covenant that God has made. And we should ask if we see this wrinkle. God promises to Abe, Abraham, and David, a future ruler, a bearer of joy, a bringer of good tidings of great joy, who would wipe away our tears and sorrows. That's who the Messiah is to be. But while this king would bring joy, he would take upon our sorrows himself. He wouldn't take away the sorrows just by wishing them away. Because the sorrows aren't tied to just unmet expectations. In the same book of comfort, we read this about this work of this Messiah. It tells us that in order to bring us joy, he became a man of sorrows. In order to bring us joy, he became a man 
of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He bore our griefs and he carried away our sorrows. Does Jesus understand your sorrows? Oh yeah. He familiarized himself with our sorrows by becoming a man and taking them away so that we would never, ever be sorrowful again. Think about how quickly we become sad. Just how quickly our expectations aren't met and then anything from minor sadness to full-fledged spiritual depression comes on and just drapes over us a depressing, dark, pitiful veil that seemingly never, ever goes away. That happens a lot. And it happens over virtually anything. Tomorrow morning, I am predicting the many in this room will have sorrow when they unwrap their gifts, <clears throat> kids and adults. And it's not what you wanted. You asked for a remote, remote control Jeep, not boat. Or as we saw last night on the island of misfit toys, you get a, you get a toy, has no purpose in your life. Sadness can come on so quick. And Jesus comes to take away our sorrows. But again, these sorrows, they're not just unmet expectations. Our sorrows are tied to our sin. Sin is the root cause of all our misery, all our frustration, all our sorrow. And by taking our sin sorrows away, we have an abiding joy in any circumstance, as Pastor Don was talking about. The reason why joy and happiness are different is because happiness flees the country when you don't get what you want. And joy remains because it's not about what you want or get. It's about this. God has appeared to save me. And that doesn't ever go away. He's appeared once and he has definitively saved me, removed me from all my sin. And he will appear a second time and take me home to be with him forever. And he will drown all my sorrows in the sea. Happiness is a pleasant feeling which rises or falls on your circumstance. Joy abides because it is a created gift in the believer as they walk about this mortal soil until they get home. Happiness says, sweet, I got what I want. Joy says, I have life. Christ appeared for me. Christ appeared for me. Little, old, humble me. Or if we 
want to word it a little more honestly, little old prideful me. So we're going to have a service later tonight. It's going to be great. We're going to have celebrating Christmas tomorrow. Just leave with just one last question. With what emotion are you celebrating with? Are you celebrating with happiness? You could do that. that. There's no sin in happiness. Or are you celebrating with true joy? True abiding joy. Delight in this single thing. Christ has appeared and he has come to take away my sin and he's done it. Let's pray.